Welcome back, pod people. In today's episode, my guest is Christopher Doobie, the producer and one of the main driving forces behind Paper City Burnout, which uh, is available to watch on Tubi. Paper City Burnout, uh, as I was watching it, especially right from the get-go at the beginning with that voiceover, really made me think this is a modern noir film. And something that uh, I see a lot when people make modern film noirs is that they really sort of ape the aesthetics of old film noir films without really getting at the soul underlying them. But Paper City Burnout is almost the exact opposite of that, where it really felt like the story, the characters, and the sort of general arc of everything was uh, very noir, tragic, uh, but the aesthetics of it were very modern. It was in color, it was you know, filmed on a digital camera, I'm guessing, and uh, didn't make any attempt to look like it was set in the 20s or anything like that. So I'm curious, uh, were you deliberately going for a noir vibe like that? Well, we definitely wanted to do a crime drama. We definitely wanted to tell a story with uh, with colorful characters and uh, sort of the, the culmination together of the heist gone wrong. Uh, initially, uh, and this thing was had its genesis uh, years before it actually came to, to fruition, um, it started off as a, almost a fan film. We were going to tell the story of joker's origin from batman which i mean only an idiot would do that there's no way that would ever be commercially successful in any way (laughs) so uh rick piven who was the the co-writer and i just sort of started kicking around this idea of uh, of how it would be if we had a short of a of a guy who was just a, a sardonic wise guy and and just it just badmouthed everyone and, and, and was always trying to be funny, but uh, always came off as mean spirited. And yes. uh, how his sort of, he would get involved in crime and the, the heist would go wrong and his family would pay the price and then he would just crack up and go after the bad guys. Hmm. And so we started putting it together with that idea in mind. Uh, and then after much more discussion and seeing a lot of fan films, we decided that we didn't want to steal anybody else's idea. We wanted to make our own characters and not sort of get stuck into the um, the notion of we can never do anything with this except release it on YouTube because all of these ideas are, are someone else's. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... It's always interesting seeing something that starts out as fan fiction become its own thing, like how probably the most prominent example of that happening is how, um, well, actually, I can think of two really prominent examples. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey started out as Twilight fan fiction, and um, Alan Moore's comic Watchmen was originally going to be written with the Charlton comics characters, but then was rewritten to use, uh, original characters. Um, so yeah, I think that was, that was probably ultimately a good decision, uh, to change it up and make them all be original characters. It makes the, the movie standalone on its own better and makes it, uh, so that I, I came in with more of an open mind and fewer preconceptions than if somebody had told me like this character is the Joker. Uh, so cool. I like that. 
Um, yeah, it was interesting that you mentioned how the main character is really mean spirited because yeah, I totally agree. The main character is an asshole and, uh, something that I've noticed a lot in, um, films in general, but especially like horror films, uh, which this kind of edges on the border of, uh, is that it's really important to get the audience to have strong emotions about the characters. And in most films, they, you know, creators of it try to make the audience really like the characters, make the characters really appealing. Uh, but it can also work just as well to have the audience really hate the characters. As long as the audience has strong emotions about them and cares about what happens to the characters, either like wanting to them to get their comeuppance or wanting to see them succeed, they're going to be invested in the outcome of the story. And so I'm curious, um, it really seemed like I was supposed to hate the main character. And, and I, I did, honestly. He was just, he was constantly lying about what he was doing to his wife. He was uh, mean to everyone. He betrayed the owner of the mechanics shop who kept giving him like second and third chances. Uh, so I'm curious why you decided to make the character so unlikable. Well, when we first got started, um... It, after the first couple of like like uh of days of, of kicking around the idea it was like oh cool it's gonna be fun because uh i'm gonna play the joker i'm like and i don't want to play the joker because <laughs> i don't like the joker as a character anymore i think that we've seen enough of this character over and over and over again over the years so we said well what is it that we do have and at the time that we were producing this, um, we were in the middle of a opioid sort of crisis. Mm, now, um, yes. I worked in the ambulance industry for 20 years, recently retired. Oh. So happy oh, about wow. that. Um, and for the Good first on 10 years, doing that and congratulations on retiring. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you make it, I guess. Um, so uh in berlin new hampshire i i was in the industry and uh i spent my first 10 years there and we uh we had maybe three overdoses in the first 10 years and okay. um for the second 10 years it was more like you know three a week uh oh my using yeah um and i'm not really in the industry anymore but i have a ton of respect for the first responders and the people who do it so I got to Narcan a lot, a lot of people. And uh, I got to re reverse overdoses. Sometimes we were there in time, sometimes we weren't. And what I noticed a lot of times was the anger that I would feel. Oh, um, oh, 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 yeah. That really came across in the, the scene where the main character overdoses and then gets revived by the two ambulance the the two EMTs. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just no, no, like, oh, by yeah, all means. yeah, how this directly uh, got into the film. So that's how we got ambulances. I was with the ambulance service, right? So uh, when you work in ultra low budget and and have to try to make things work, you you tend to go with what you have, and you have to write your stories for what's available to you. And I had yeah. access to ambulances, so we got to throw that scene in. Um, and uh, that's that's the green scene <laughs> with all the different uh, filters and, and colors that we used. So what uh, struck me in, in writing the story of Jack was 
the line. And, and always when you have those, those overdoses that you reverse and the person snaps out of it with Narcan, and that's, that's what you see in the movie is what it looks like. You're uh, essentially dead snoring about the choke on your own tongue. And then the stuff goes up your nose or into your veins. If you have an IV and you just come right out of it and you're, you're just as, as just back. So the first thing that most of the folks that I've seen reversed overdose uh, do is lie. They weren't using drugs. So I, I don't use drugs, you know, with it all caked over their face. That's real. <laughs> that's that's what it looks like. Um, and uh, the the other thing is the, the pathology of, of what it, it takes intellectually to put yourself in that place. Uh, Narcan, the, the drug that reverses opioids, right? It, it's like uh, it's yeah. like it shellacks the brain. It's like it shrink wraps your brain. So your brain can no longer absorb any opium, any morphine, any heroin. And, and no matter what you do, it's like your brain is wearing like a, like a plastic coating, like, like a sponge wrapped in plastic. A lot of people, though, who have been administered Narcan and have overdosed will still try to zoot it or shoot it up, even though they know it's not going to get them high. So hmm. there's this compulsion to do things in a certain way. And with the people that I talked to that, that had been addicts or that still were addicts, it's almost more about the ritual of the drug than it is. So again, we're all people and we don't hate anybody, but it is possible to hate the lie and the structure that creates that way of, I'm going to live my life in this way and I don't care what damage it, or I don't have the capacity to care because all I think about is wanting to put myself onto this different plane. So of all yeah. of the characters that I've played That's as an actor, um, Jack's the worst, most despicable human being I could think of. <laughs> and, and just sort of what would the weaseliest, you know, most rotten person do uh, who's not even nice to his own kid and how they would yeah. go about their, their, their business. Yeah, that was a very like striking scene, probably the most powerful scene in, in the movie. I remember as I was watching it, uh, I kept thinking like, wow, so I, I am not someone who knows a whole lot about ambulances or, or narcotics or anything like that. But as I was watching it, I kept thinking like, wow, this really looks like it was made by somebody who knows a lot about this. Like this looks like a real ambulance. This looks like someone putting a lot of detail into uh this fictional overdose so that's really interesting to hear the backstory about that and have my suspicions confirmed that this is coming from a, a place of personal experience um yeah so i've watched a lot of movies that start out with this really sort of despicable protagonist and then there's of a learning point that's you know halfway or a third or two thirds or whatever through the movie where they hit rock bottom and then they recover and like they they had they have the coming to god moment or whatever where they decide to turn their life around and i kept expecting there to be a moment like that in paper city burnout but there never was he just kept getting worse like he kept having opportunities to improve things like he would give be given a second chance at the 
uh, at his job or his his friend the phone sex guy uh would you know have have this really emotional heart-to-heart -heart talk with him but then he like would just throw it away he would get angry he would get mad at his friend for I guess from his perspective, he thought his friend might be like looking down on him or something. Um, and he would like dismiss the, uh, the, the steady paycheck at the job in favor of a one-time paycheck working with trying to rob the place. Um, and so uh, I'm curious why you decided to make this like ultimately a tragedy rather than the more standard sort of redemption story. Well, there was no way this was ever going to have a happy ending. Um, while I was writing, <laughs> and it, it does or, or not. While I was <laughs> while I was writing the uh, the the overall story, originally um, the plan was that Jack was going to um, save his family, and then they were going to be on the run because Jack is now responsible for multiple different crimes that are being committed. So Jack realizes right. that there's only one way out for him. So while they were um, in his father-in-law's stolen car on the way out of town, Jack was going to stop at a uh, at a gas station, and he was going to intentionally OD in the restroom uh, and leave the the wife and the daughter. Um, oh yeah. Wow uh intention but i thought before you said that i was like oh he's gonna rob the gas station or something maybe get shot in that no but like intentionally od not even accidentally wow that's grim well the the heist originally the heist and the the taking place at the halfway point between uh between the the boston and montreal uh why on earth would he leave all the money and drugs there if that was his so you know we we sort of like put it together that he would be that they would be in the end on the run with the money and the drugs and um he would leave his family he would leave his his wife and his daughter and he would he would just you know um uh, take the responsibility for everything and and the shame of everything and just sort of be unable to live with that and and check himself out in the most uh escapable way imaginable uh but uh you know yeah. the the story evolved and as it went on you know and i sold or we all kind of got sold on the idea of telling the story but like you know i mean a more fun gut punch why don't we do this <laughs> and then this <laughs> and then let's see what happens <laughs> after that um there is um there is a alternate ending where uh the uh the other character, the, the the villain, if there is one, that's that's not the main character. His his sort of antagonist character uh, meets up with the uh, the boss from uh, from Boston named Nero, uh, who who does him in as well. So you know, just mm. the whole everybody dies kind of a kind of a notion <laughs> for the story. Um, we kicked around a lot of different um ideas but then where i was coming from with the story that we wanted to tell and we we didn't want like a happy drug story we didn't want to do like a cheech and chong thing we wanted to <laughs> show the real sort of uh horror as it were of of what that lifestyle and what the consequences are 
And that's somewhat overblown. I mean, there aren't actually gunfights going on uh, on the streets of small town America, except for when there are. Yeah, I was going to say sometimes there are. I, I, I have heard shootings from my house. So, um, but yeah, that's <laughs> this is very far from a Cheech and Chong stoner comedy. Um, and marijuana is very far from uh the sort of things that you need narcan to survive uh yeah this is it's it's rare that i've seen a movie that has such a like it starts in such a bleak place and then just goes downhill from there and it really ended in a tragic just sort of nothing good comes out of it uh, uh, way, which I, I thought was a brave choice because that's so different from what we normally see. Uh, so I really appreciated that. I, I, I enjoyed um, seeing how there was no deus ex machina. Uh, the guy didn't like have a change of heart and turn into a good person. He was just, he was bad and his mistakes and bad decisions kept compounding on each other. Um, so going back to the, the structure of the film a little, um, it opens and closes with a narrating voice. Is that narrator meant to be one of the characters in the film or is it just sort of a omniscient third person perspective? Well, at the beginning of the, of the story, there's this, one of the characters, uh, is the, the sort of distribution boss of the small town. And that was done okay. by an actor named Stephen Trowski, the guy who has the office and, and is sort of running this little uh, welfare Gestapo of uh, of characters. Um, yeah. And so he opens the story and he also closes the story because I wanted I, I, the narrator Whoa. can't die. Right. So the, the narrator is right. the person telling the story. But then it's like, well, we're telling the story however we want. So we can also do whatever we want. Uh yeah. I don't think all of those decisions were necessarily the best that we could have done, but I do think that it came together in the way that it did, and I'm happy that it did. But I think, you know, if given the opportunity to do it again, I think I'd have thrown a little couple of rays of sunshine in. Uh, maybe some <laughs> of the characters would have had a better outcome than they did. <laughs> it is pretty exclusively, like misery there are a few funny moments in it like with the when the phone sex operator uh uh when, when you overhear him working um but and I, I i guess i'm trying to think of like who are even the sympathetic characters i mean there's the wife and the kid and the phone sex operator um and that's really it i mean i guess the ambulance like the emt people but they're only in one scene um i I was curious, the, the phone sex operator uh, really seems like the kind of character that you could have in a stoner comedy without a whole lot of change, except for the one monologue he gives about how sad he is about how he doesn't have like a family or anything like that. Uh, just cut that out and you could pretty much lift that character wholesale and put him in a comedy without having to change much. So I'm curious where the idea for that character came from. Well, uh, once we moved past the notion of making it a fan film and wanted to tell a more uh, deep story, 
uh, we, we had to add what, what's called ifs, thens, and therefores. So, you know, you, you have your very simple beginning, middle, and end, but then you have to add things that, that sort of give the characters more depth. And um, I had been sort of uh, vagabonding around New England for 10 years, uh, helping various other indie filmmakers make their own stuff. So I thought, well, you know, we're going to announce that they were going to make a feature film and we will have a whole bunch of, of interest and, and some of the actors that I've worked with will come in and who can we get to play these different characters. Uh, and I wrote Elvin for myself. So I thought, I'm goofy enough looking and I have a background in comedy. Uh, I could be Elvin. And then uh, Shane Reich, the guy who we sort of came in, was like, mm, let me take a crack. And he did. And all of a sudden, Shane is verbally abusing people on the phone. People named Steve and Bob, who were both my coworkers, so I threw their names in as the people on the other end of the phone. And Shane just absolutely killed it. I, I mean, for my money, he 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 did the best, he had the best performance in the, in the film, just showing you this this very colorful very you know illustrated character named alvin who who makes his living this way but also you know um the uh the genesis of it is, is sort of like about the friendship between uh between men and and how uh the modern male interacts with uh, you know his their contemporaries like a like a butch mm. and sundance kind of a thing and okay. that the the friendship and and general compassion and and love that these guys feel for each other is offset by their activities and the way that they verbally just tear into one another but in that sort of good-natured ribbing but still kind of hurts and you wish you didn't say those things kind of a way yeah yeah that was it was interesting seeing and like you said the guy who who portrayed alvin did a good job. He had probably the most range in what was needed from him in terms of the different performances, because uh, he had both like, you know, comedic, just sort of hanging out with his friend uh, and the over the top phone sex and the uh, tearful monologue trying to save his friend from his own self-destruction. Uh, so yeah, he did a really good job with that. Um, I think the thing that stuck with me the most in the movie was at the very end when the narrator says like, uh, I, I forget the exact phrasing, but it was something like, um, these events didn't really happen, but if they did happen in the town that you live in, would you have even noticed? And I was just thinking like, man, I probably would not. All of these, you know, terrible things, these people's lives being ruined in, in these various ways yeah would have been completely invisible to me just because i'm not one of the people involved um and that really got me thinking about you know, the people around me in my neighborhood and the opioid crisis uh across america in general as yeah it's it's all going on it's affecting so many people but it's also so invisible to the people that it's not affecting and i wonder it made me wonder what all is going around me that might be just as tragic as this but i'm not noticing it uh, so i thought that was a really good um thing to go out on make the audience think about as they uh leave the theater as it were 
Well, we uh, we shot a lot that wasn't that didn't make the film, um, and one of I the, hear that's pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. One of the the scenes that we shot uh, took place in a diner, um, after like an epilogue, and it was a bunch of people sitting in this small town diner with the the newspaper had just come out, and it had said that the garage owner had had just skipped town owing a bunch of people money the the fellow that owed, owned the garage and was jack's employer he was missing right and, and everyone was missing because ultimately when the, the the criminal enterprise finds out what has happened here they clean it up and they make everything disappear as though nothing has happened so these people just sort of up and left town and no one knew what happened to them and and had had put the pieces together Although I believe there there were probably several missing people at that point, but they weren't the type of people that it goes noticed when they're missing. They were the type of yeah. people that you sort of overlook. Yeah, it um that 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 thought of like people going missing and other people around them either not noticing or not caring, uh, it actually it reminded me of um, Stephen King's It in the town of Derry, where these people. Uh, in that in that story, you know, there's a supernatural explanation for what's going on, but it's really seems like a metaphor for the kind of thing that you did a literal representation of, where, yeah, people just either being unaware or turning a, a deliberate blind eye to what's going on around them. Um, this this movie gets really close to being a morality play. But then the fact that the innocent wife and kid get killed really turns it into just a straight up tragedy. And so uh, I was curious, like given that this is commenting on these serious issues that are you know real problems that people really face, uh, to to what extent was it intended as um, at, like to teach a lesson, and to what extent was it intended to just tell a story? Well, first and foremost, my favorite genre is, is crime drama. And so when, okay. when I got to make my movie, um, you know, or, you know, the, the movie that we all decided was like, wait, we really should do a crime drama because they, they have the coolest, snappiest dialogue. And uh, we had access to the various um, locations that we had. So we said, we, we sort of have to tell a contemporary. Now, I mean, if I won the Powerball, I would consider remaking the movie, but maybe setting it in 1968, uh, oh. you know, to, to take out the cell phones from the equation and, and put more of the sort of blossoming of, of that particular substance and sort of its first run uh, of, of, of heroin in this sort of post Vietnam era. And so that some of yeah. the, the people coming back from the, uh, from the war would have brought these habits with them. And that's how the, uh, the, the bomb of this narcotic would have hit that community and, and how it would have sort of splintered out. Uh, but you know, uh, as much as I would love to grow a mustache and big old pork chop sideburns and walk around in a brown leather coat, <laughs> we didn't have that. We needed contemporary vehicles and everything. So we, yeah, we told the story in the way that we did. And I didn't want it to be an after school special because that's while we were sort of writing it, we said, we, we want to make it hard hitting enough so that it doesn't come across as a almost faith based production or a morality tale. 
We wanted to make sure that there was enough, you know, violence and, and profanity and gunplay in it to really go for the R rating that we, we thought we were going to get. Uh, but the other thing about it was just writing for what you know. And I had been mm. so blessed to help so many other people with their various projects over the years that we sort of said, well, what kind of story can we tell? And so a lot of the, the folks who I had helped over the years, like it came time for, for them to help me. And so they appeared as characters in the film or they, they uh, added their own sort of um, uh, spice to the story and, and told us what we thought over the, over the course of the entire production. Um, it's a four weekend shoot that we did. Um, we got everybody oh, together. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was rough, and we uh, I had uh, my other executive producer Sarah Mitchell, uh, who's just an absolutely amazing organizer. We sort of kicked back and forth, and she came up with this schedule where we could shoot the whole thing over four weekends, uh, bringing the various actors to the location and and feeding them and putting them up for the time that they were on set. And, yeah. uh, that's where we did it, like an Indiegogo to, uh, to start the, and, and raise the funds. So what we were able to raise went towards feeding our crew and, and putting the people up in hotels that we had to put up and they were real troopers. And then we scheduled last, like the last things, including the big shootout for what we were calling Alamo weekend. And in Alamo weekend, we knew our backs were going to be against the wall and we were going to have to uh, shoot every sequence that we hadn't quite shot yet. But fortunately, due to, you know, Sarah and really being, you know, amazing with that whole on the spot of, of keeping us uh, moving along and, and standing behind everybody with a whip, uh, as she was instructed to do, um, <laughs> we, we were able to get the whole thing done and, but that last day, uh, where we, we shot the, uh, the, the final sequence, um, we had people, uh, still running around covered in blood at three in the morning, um, filming those, getting those last shots that we absolutely needed to get with those actors before they had to leave because everybody is always on a time crunch. And uh, some people kind of quit during the production and things had to be rewritten around them. The whole thing was, uh, it was uh, very exciting, very intense. And that's why I'm very happy to be back to helping other people with their projects rather than trying to run my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, a thing I've, I've heard quite a few times now is that the, the whole process is a lot more work and a lot more intense than uh, most people would expect. And um, you're also not the first person to mention the importance of feeding your, your cast and crew. Uh, that to so, me is, is um, the most important. Like it, people yeah. really, and, and having been an actor in, in a lot of different productions, I can tell you that having something to eat and, and having sort of the opportunity to sit down and, and just sort of relax and having somebody provide you with something really means the world because having been on both, um, if somebody brings you something and somebody gives you a sandwich, you will bust your butt for them. And it's, <laughs> it's ultimately the, the people who make the, the production are really the only ones who are going to benefit from it. 
So by them paying it forward, that was something that I always thought was important to do. And also, which was awesome, probably one of the smartest things we did was when we did our Indiegogo and when we were raising funds for the film, I went around to a lot of the different restaurants in our community and I said, look, whatever you give us, I will pay threefold back to you in orders for you know the, the production and all of the folks that we have to feed. So if a pizza place donated 25 bucks, we were buying 75 worth of pizza from them. Ah, <laughs> all right. I see what you mean. Interesting. Uh, never would have occurred to me to do that sort of thing, but that's a, uh, that's, that's cool. So was this shot um, like in the town that you were living in at the time or? The majority of the film is shot in uh, Berlin, New Hampshire which was the location of the thing. And then uh, we did actually go to Somerville, Mass um, and uh, shoot the Boston scenes in Boston, outside of Boston in Somerville. And, okay. uh, you know, uh, we shot it over the course of, uh, of three weekends, but then second unit can go whenever it wants. So uh, if I was flying into Logan or, you know, going on vacation, flying back into Boston, uh, I better absolutely hold out my cell phone and got that picture of the uh, the freeway from inside the uh, the Logan Airport to sort of establish that we were there. Um, nice. A lot of the of the shots that we got of like vehicles transitioning from one place to another and sort of the background in Boston, we wanted to sell it as an idea, but I was also very enamored with. Um, the idea of filming and, and shooting a short film or, or short, any kind of film in, uh, in Berlin. Um, we had been so fortunate to get so many different productions there over the years from Boston, from Southern, uh, New Hampshire and getting them up to just sort of the natural beauty of the area. And Berlin has such a unique look and, and a unique feel to it that we really wanted to showcase how, how beautiful the community was and use that as a backdrop for uh, the rotting sort of under underground <laughs> right yeah yeah um so about the title of the film is paper city like a nickname for berlin the way that uh steel city is a nickname for pueblo or, or where where does okay all right all right i was i was guessing it was something like that Berlin um, became known to, for paper mills. Um, there were there were very when I was growing up there as a kid, you know, everybody worked at the mill. And then, as happens with a lot of industrial towns and cities, the uh, the mill closed. So you had left a lot of uh, a lot of unemployment and a lot of urban decay. Uh, so Berlin was known as uh, as Paper City for a while, and. Um, it was not the original title of the film. It was originally Avalanche, uh, which, and we were going to do that uh, that bit, sort of the Kevin Smith bit, because we were indie filmmakers, which means, of course, we worship the guy, where there were <laughs> title cards and and the, the all-black screen with the white text, and we we're going to give the various definitions of the title of the movie, which was called Avalanche, and sort of the, the sudden start of momentum that builds forward into an inescapable sort of uh delusion and a disaster the, the sort of snowballing effect of of how every mistake and bad decision that the main character makes leads him to further mistakes and bad decisions and and the consequences keep going up 
Yeah. Well, not not just Jack. All of the characters have these these ideas that they're going to be better than they are when after this one thing. So mm. the, the the villainous character, sort of Jack's uh, nemesis in the film, um, he has the idea that uh, they're going to rip off this thing, this this deal. And then they're going to frame Jack for the bit, making them look great to their superiors and their suppliers and, and having them cut in, you know, as a piece of the, and it's a, the, the small town crook with, with big aspirations and wanting to move up the ladder. So all yeah. these different characters had these big ideas for what they wanted to happen. Um, Jack's father-in-law hoped that Jack was going to take over the business uh jack and alvin sort of had his ideas for where his friendship with jack was going to go and what they were going to do and they all sort of had these ideas and they would they would tick these little these little pieces into motion and the pieces would collide with one another and and create this big mess that no one actually intended to happen that was that yeah. was the genesis and the idea of it and then we found out that there's like four movies called Avalanche and and different <laughs> video games and other stories. And one of yeah. the uh, people that came in later sort of talked uh, us into uh, changing the title, so it would be something that would stand out. And yeah, yeah. being able to uniquely identify uh, your project is pretty helpful. And Avalanche, um, relatively common one word, Paper City Burnout not a phrase i've ever heard before because it's you know nickname of a specific city plus then another descriptor so yeah probably a good decision to to change that up even though the you're missing out on the poetic aspect of the avalanche idea um yeah it's interesting you're talking about how everyone has all these different dreams and in the end nobody gets what they want that the the mechanic who owns the shop gets killed the uh thieves did the thieves get any like get the stuff that they meant to steal i didn't even catch that because i was so caught up in the character drama um and of course the main character didn't jack didn't get what he wanted. his family very much didn't get what he wanted. uh his friend alvin uh lost his best friend nobody got what they wanted so well no the 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 villains who uh, wanted to climb up the the criminal sort of underworld chain uh their end was inevitable because it, it's it's sort of a you don't need to be a genius to see through what happened there but uh the the rivalry that sort of the the most verbiose of the uh of the three um uh robbers had he, mm -hmm. he hated jack absolutely hated him from a time back when they were kids due to reasons that they get yeah. into so his idea was just to get rid of jack the other guy was to use jack and, and bury him out on frog pond road and, and blame him for the heist which meant that the money and the drugs could disappear and not explain where they went so everybody would sort of move up and then when his boss started sort of explaining that this was a really really bad idea like the, the voice of reason so he went violent and and you you sort of see the evolution of him his boss says you know clean up get some new clothes you look like an appalachian gigolo and then from the point forward that you see that character he's better groomed he's trying to he's got these ambitions that maybe never would have been in his head had his boss not you know sort of 
told him off. That's what we were going for. Now, whether or not it worked, it's another thing altogether. If it worked really that well, I wouldn't have to necessarily explain it. But uh, I thought right. we, we were successful in that we finished it. We got the film. We got it out there. We got it on Prime. Um, we got to take all of these folks who had never been in a film before, had never acted before, or had, but at a different level. And for for a lot of those folks, it's like, hey, we're in a thing, and it's on Amazon Prime. Now, bigger deals yeah. than I and they and we, to them, that's not a big deal. But for us, man, that was that was living the dream. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice to get that sort of validation for your art. Um, I one of the books that I wrote was recently. Uh, is now available in, at Barnes and Noble, and that was like pretty impressive. Like that, that that blew my mind to see. So I was happy about that. Um, so yeah, I totally, I totally get what you're saying about the validation of seeing this something that you made available in this uh, mainstream platform where where anybody can can go and and find it. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So so I guess the you keep calling them the villains, but I. Every, most of the characters in the movies are sort of villainous. Uh, I, I guess the antagonists. Uh, it's interesting how it sounds like what made them more successful is, I mean, it's not like their virtue or anything like that. It's more their ability to cooperate with each other that uh, Jack can't even cooperate with his family or his best friend or his employer. Whereas these guys who are uh, at least as bad as Jack in, in a variety of ways, um, are able to cooperate with each other and therefore are more successful, uh, in, in what they're doing. That's an interesting, uh, me, that's an interesting thing to think about how you're not necessarily rewarded for being a good person in life. You're rewarded for being able to work with other people and actually get stuff done we liked the and i i've always been like a big fan of the cohen brothers and, and of course quentin tarantino mm. with the various like villains that are always they're not exactly all there and it, it's sort of an, an elmore leonard trope that like, who is the these second, days you're right the the second in command villain is sort of not a big deal at the beginning of the story but they become progressively more dangerous as the story goes on like uh like lewis yeah. and jackie brown or, or sort of the the bad guys in the stories that that he writes and we sort of had this idea that all of these criminals like even the ones that are higher up the food chain they're imbeciles they're all <laughs> idiots and very few of them can see beyond like what's right in front of their face. They, they, they don't mm. consider the, the, the ramifications of what they're doing or the repercussions. And that's sort of tied into the, the, the mentality and the lifestyle, not just of the main character, but I think any character in that, uh, in that film taking like stopping and stepping back the, the sort of the moral compass of the thing is Alvin. He's like, you're, yeah. you're standing on the train tracks and we establish in his opening scene that Alvin is not to be taken seriously. You know, I mean, he's, he's yeah. screaming into the telephone. Yeah. 
yeah, that's interesting that um, I agree. He seems like the most morally centered person in the film with the possible exception of the wife, but he, uh, since Jack just completely ignores his wife, there's, she, she doesn't have much impact on him. It seems whereas Alvin and has that, like they have that big, you know, Alvin trying to help him out, but Jack rejecting it scene. Uh, so Alvin does seem more significant in that regard. Well, when, when we talked Asia, who played uh, uh, the, uh, the the character that, that I got to be the, the terrible, terrible husband of, when, when I first started <laughs> talking to Asia about it, we went over a lot of who her character was. And her thing was she refuses to see. If she looks hard, she'll have to accept mm. some unfortunate truths. But she yeah. doesn't want to see like the the, the chinks in, in jack's armor she if his story is even slightly believable she's like okay i i prefer this i prefer accepting this lie to what the truth means for me yeah i don't know she she seemed like that she seemed like she was trying to be like that like she wanted to believe it but then a lot of the time she did just, you know, like, like see the truth of what was going on that, you know, he was getting drunk and not going to work, uh, th things like that. So I, it seemed to me less like she was actually self-deluding and more like she wished she could delude herself into having a happier life. Um, but she kept noticing the, the truth about what was going on and, and like, she would get angry at him about it, which is entirely justified because he was completely blowing off all his responsibilities and then lying about it. And that's not cool, man. <laughs> Probably my favorite shot of the movie is where she's going to confront him with what, uh, she knows to be true. And we see her reflection in a photograph of them on the wall of like previous happier times and just sort of the oh, way yeah. that she was able to tell on her face sort of the, 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 the decay of, of what she knew to be true. And she really did so much. She did so much more when she wasn't speaking. And, and I don't mean that as a knock in any way, but. <laughs> just the way that she would look at him and you know he would he would kiss her goodbye and then scowl as he was moving off and you just sort of the sort of saw the color fall out of her face because she knew he was lying to her like the whole time yeah. she knows i do not believe this guy but i want it to be true more than i know that it is and yeah not just her, but everybody that's sort of stuck in that lifestyle has the, the danger of falling into that trap. Yeah. Tragic and, situation all around. Well, it, it, it is. Um, but, uh, you know, in addition to the story, the, the story behind the stories, we got to make a movie. We got to buy these really awesome uh, blood pumps and and no budget special effects, and we got to have a gunfight, and we got to have a chase scene, and uh, we got to do um, a, a 
scene where a guy falls in front of a car and the car comes like an inch away from his nose and all these these cute little tricks that that i learned how to do over the years and that, that the other people that were involved in the thing um the the stunt people that i'd work with and various other and unfortunately i can't really name too many names because there are dozens and dozens of people and i will forget one and then get the mean call you never mentioned but like all this really cool stuff that that we knew how to do from from helping these folks make their films and, and for being involved in the process from over the years that we got to do it all we, we sort of had a, yeah. a a bucket list of we're going to make this movie it has to have this it has to have this it has to have this i am going to fire a fully automatic weapon inside of this warehouse because we have it and we have these blank firing guns and <laughs> darn it we're going to do it and we used way more blood than we needed and those pumps were way more charged so in the footage is like something out of the evil dead and the cleanup was hellacious at three o'clock oh, in the morning you know scrubbing blood off the ceilings because we got a little a little carried away with it but what a time yeah i don't you know? envy you that <laughs> when you really do it and it still feels like you're playing you know and even in the most like difficult times in making of the film you, you you're pretending to be something you're not you're 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 playing dress up and, and to make a movie and even if well regardless of the outcome when the movie gets finished and everybody gets to say hey that's ours you know we did that that's something that not a lot of people get yeah 99% uh, of filmmakers never finish their film you know, huh. like, like all these projects that get started that never make it off the cocktail napkin, the people that have the idea worked out in their head and don't put it down to paper. Like so many of these things don't actually get to happen, but when you do make something and you get to say for good or for bad warts and all, we were here, we did this, here's proof of it. And th that's a yeah. feeling that I don't know if you can talk creatively uh yeah um so that brings me to the my final question which is so you've you've had a lot of experience working on independent films uh, for for a while now where do you see the future of independent films going i think we are getting smaller in so far as the stories that we tell I think that mm. that overall, you, you it's the wild west, not so much as it used to be, but the idea that anyone can take their iPhone and go out and shoot some stuff, and even if their audio falls apart and nothing <laughs> that came in on the Zoom works, and you've got to use the crappy audio that came through the camera mic, as happened to us, and even if you have a major character that sort of flakes out on you halfway through the production and wanders off and you have to rewrite the entire second half of the movie as happens right these are things that can be surmounted like you you don't have a a goal when you get together with a group of people and you say we're going to make a movie right that movie is going to change the the things that you love the most when you start off making the film you're going to have to kill by the time you're done at the end of it you're, you're yeah. not going to get with a budget of like four thousand dollars which was what we spent on paper city 
you're not going to get anything exactly resembling what you thought you were going to get. But so many people can do it. So all you really need are a group of teenagers with cell phones. Where are we ever going to find them? And (laughs) a few tech people that are willing to do their part and sit down and tell their story. And even if it doesn't turn out exactly the way you want it to, like at the end of that day, at the end of the time that you're, you're a filmmaker and nobody can ever take that away from you. Like, yeah, that's a really nice perspective. So my thing was going into it. If we finish the movie and we actually get it anywhere, we win because you can put anything on YouTube. Yeah. And we did. Uh, but in, in so far as the process, once we did that Indiegogo and once I took people's money, I'm like, hell or high water, we're going to have a, a movie at the end of this. And even though it has its various shortcomings, I still feel like we won. Like we, we accomplished what we set out to do. So many projects get sort of left along the way and, and get unfinished on somebody's hard drive somewhere with hours and hours of footage that they never can put together. We get to yeah. sort of Frankenstein together a story of all of the stuff that we shot and, and do various reshoots and, and add things that need to be had. I think we're going to see more of these. I don't necessarily recommend that people do it the way that we did because we spilled a lot more beer along the way than we had to. Um, <laughs> obviously, like if you can go and and finish the project and, and get it done without those shortcomings, but you also learn a lot more from failure than you do from success. And we learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh uh certainly something i've experienced in my life like uh uh i run kickstarter projects every now and then and the only one of them that's ever uh failed to reach its goal when i then reworked it and relaunched it it became my most successful one i've ever had so completely i completely hear you on the you you learn more from your failures than from your successes so uh thank you so much for talking with me um where should people go if they want to see your work? Well, I live in Pueblo now. I, I don't uh, live in New Hampshire anymore. So I am available as a active free agent and, and other assorted creative type to make all kinds of uh, interesting stuff in this area. Insofar as my actual work, uh, I have an IMDB page under my name, Chris Doobie. Um Anybody interested in casting, collaborating, whatever, can uh, can find me pretty easy on Facebook. I look weird, so you know if you you know call <laughs> up the thing and like, hey, that's that that looks like a kind of guy that would do this kind of stuff. It's probably going to be me. Uh, so, um, and now uh, with regards to the stuff I've done, I, I have a YouTube channel with some of my earlier uh, short films. Um, have been doing a lot here with the the folks that work with the Kick-Ass Film Festival. Uh, have a couple of scripts that I'd, I'd like to see develop around here. And I'm just sort of hoping to do more of the same types of, of offbeat and interesting stories, but now in Pueblo. Yeah. Uh, I'm, of course, also in Pueblo. I'm looking forward to getting involved in... Uh, 
I'm I'm not Kickass Film Fest is the 72 hour one, so I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. Uh, but I am curious. I'm, I'm looking into making something for uh, the Pueblo Film Festival, which I will probably be releasing this episode uh, shortly before in 2023. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to to all of that. You should uh, do both. If, if you <laughs> want to do creative stuff, uh, go out because uh, and anyone who's making stuff, find them and 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 get involved in their projects and help out even if you just hold a uh you know hold a, a boom pole or, or whatever just be on a set and and feel the amazing energy there and, and participate in that creative project process uh the kick-ass people uh the with uh with wake up pueblo and that uh that uh the pueblo film festival like it's so exciting to hopefully be a part of that stuff that's coming up and you're not going to be in the same category as everybody else because i don't think anybody thinks that they are go <laughs> out and do it because even though you know you, you may not win you may not place you may not get anything in the it doesn't like nobody cares just being in that <laughs> theater and and seeing all those different people and all those different creative hearts and and minds that put that stuff together there's no better feeling than seeing somebody on the big screen and looking over and seeing somebody with tears in their eyes because that's their dream come true. That you is know, pretty cool. It, you may not make a career out of it, but being around those weirdos, man, it's it's like being at home. 